Welcome to SG Fun, a podcast where we talk about Stargate SG-1 in order. We've spent a considerable amount of time on the episodes that we think are important and or entertaining, and skim a little faster past the others. I'm Trishy Matson. I'm Andrew Patius. And I'm David Schaub. And today we are covering just three episodes as opposed to our marathon last week. Why don't we start out with Brief Candle? And I believe, Andrew, you're going to introduce it. All right. Yeah. So for Brief Candle, SG-1 visits a world where the human lifespan has been shortened to days by Gua'uld experimentation. And O'Neill is infected and artificially aged to elderliness after sleeping with a native. Ooh, spicy. There are various philosophical discussions on how to spend your life, various makeup effects, and questionable old man accents. O'Neill and the team act as the inevitable white savior and find a way to stop the effects, and everyone lives happily ever after. So this is the second episode in this season where Richard Dean Anderson gets to ham it up under a bunch of makeup. <laughs> And the third one where he gets to act sort of differently than his normal character. So you can kind of get the sense that the writers were like, well, we've got this famous actor and we know he can act. So we're just going to give him as much scenery as he can chew <laughs> and just let him let him do it. Right. Now he's a professional actor. You can tell this by how he can say the phrase, Pelops doesn't give a rat's ass about things like love and not crack up and fall to the ground. <laughs> Well, we don't know how many takes it took. <laughs> That's true. Well, he was really he was really emotional about it, too. Really good delivery. The woman he sleeps with, his, his quote-unquote wife, is played by the lovely Bobby Phillips, who, if you have watched much 90s television and she looks familiar, that's probably because you know her from the famous Cockroaches episode of The X-Files, War of the Coprophages. Oh. And it's sort of very uh, Kirk-like. You get very strong Star Trek vibes from this because, it's, again, it's another concept planet. But it's also, you know, the, the main actor sleeping with the native. It's kind of funny how awkward the show is about it, but they really need want to have that as part of the plot. So anyway. Yeah, it's it's odd. It felt like they, for some reason, thought they needed some parallelism because it is very much like the movie where a native woman gives food to Daniel and, yep. hey, surprise, they're married. Here, Jack really should know better. And <laughs> yeah, the team should know better, right? They all just kind of sit around. The team yep, should know yep. better. He's acting obviously <laughs> drugged and uncharacteristic, but they just watch him go into the tent with the woman yep. um, and kind of shrug. And that's very dissatisfying. <laughs> but it sounds consistent with this show. I don't think there's that much more of intimate relations with natives in the show. I don't think that's a common theme, but yeah. I can't think of any more episodes where someone gets a surprise wedding. <laughs> <laughs> it's the usual, you know, they have to figure out a, a, the puzzle and reverse things and make everybody happy. And, you know, the usual thing. It's just not quite as interesting as other episodes where we have watched and we're going to be watching. So, yeah, I, I did like that Jack said once he realized what was going on. After this, we stick to rations. Yeah, that was that was a fun life. I can't quite remember if they hold to that or not. Oh, they almost certainly don't. Yeah. <laughs> there are also some very questionable quarantine practices. Indeed. There's like one scene where they come back in hazmat suits, and then Carter almost immediately takes the hood off. And I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Into the showers, the decontamination showers with you, suit and all, is what should happen. This is, I think, the first episode where they took sort of nanobots as a, a world technology. So, you know, it's some interesting stuff going on there. So, yeah, like, David, if you ever have an extra hour to kill somewhere and feel like watching this episode, it's not bad. It's just not great. Okay. All right. So then we can move on to our next episode. I'd say so. Let's move on. Thor's Hammer. 
Jackson has a theory. Teal'c has a Stargate address. I sense a pattern. The team travels to a planet inhabited by Norse descendants. A trap transports Teal'c and O'Neill into a maze built to drive Gould from their hosts. Jackson and her Carter meet Kendra, a host freed from her Gould parasite. Kendra faces her fears. Teal'c and O'Neill fight and kill an ancient Gould with Thor's hammer, which the team then instantly destroys for no explicable reason. <laughs> Well, that's not the summary that I would have given, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you'd have the same last line at least. <laughs> oh, man. I'm very curious. Can we hear your summary too, Andrew? Okay. So SG-1 attempts to find some good god aliens by going to Samaria, where Teal'c and O'Neill are banished to an underground labyrinth by an alien beam. Sam and Daniel talk to Kendra, someone who was freed from her Gua'uld symbiote by an alien device called Thor's Hammer, and can lead them to the labyrinth's exit. In the labyrinth, Teal'c and O'Neill must face the monstrous creature Unas, also possessed by a Gua'uld. While they are able to kill Unas via Thor's hammer, they must destroy the device in order to allow Teal'c to leave. Tough decision because it means the device can't be used to free Skara and Sharae. If I actually believed that the timing requirement was there at the end... <laughs> well, yes, yeah. That's... I would have bought that. <laughs> yeah, that's in my notes as well. But there is yeah. no timing requirement. But we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> get to that. Yeah, yeah. Before we dive in, I just want to say how much I loved the beginning of the episode where they dial in and they're on the dais and all the people there from the world point and laugh at them. (laughs) (laughs) It was so refreshing and fun to see that kind of reaction instead of, you know, people falling on their knees. And it turns out that they thought that some humans had tricked the Gould into coming to this planet so that they could eliminate them. And I enjoyed the whole setup of this episode um, and some of the surprises that they sprang on us. Well, there was also, um, I think there's one little scene um, before they actually go through the gate where O'Neill says something like, time to go to work. And um, my note there is, everyone's all hopeful and happy. And, you know, I just like those little team moments mm-hmm. of everybody just, just doing their thing. I can appreciate these two episodes that we've put together and that they're both places that the Gould have not actually been. And therefore, you get a very different feeling episode yep. than all the places that have been controlled and taken over by the Gould. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then almost immediately this beam comes out and Teal'c is in pain and O'Neill goes to help him and they both get zapped away. And that's actually... Before the credits, right? So that's how the, the dramatic moment where they where they switch to the credits. Mm-hmm. And then Daniel is like, well, this is Thor's hammer, but I think they're dead. So that was, you know, a little disconcerting at first. When they, of course, we know they're probably not dead. But And then Gerwin comes up. Gerwin is the Norse native who comes up to talk to them and says, you're a little short for gods, which I thought was a nice... Uh, a great little line. Yes. <laughs> nice little Star Wars reference there. <laughs> um, but they quickly come to, to understanding that they're from from Midgard. And it's funny, all these, all these words that we now... All know how to pronounce from the Thor movies, right? Right, we know Midgard and uh, Mjolnir. Mm-hmm. We know how to pronounce all of these things that were probably a little harder for me to pronounce when I first saw the show. I didn't initially recognize Thrudvan, which I think basically translates to of Thor, but hey, it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that one I've never heard before, and they don't mention it again in the episode. But it does suggest a possible name of where Thor and the other Asgardians actually are, is right. there's a planet or someplace out there. Right. There's also that bit where uh, Gerwin comes, rides down on a horse, and we'll get to the specifics of it, but you know, she says, well, we need to go on foot. And I was like, aha, they only had one day's worth of horse rental in this episode's budget. <laughs> <laughs> They need the horses for plowing, maybe. Efficient use of budget. It's a plus. (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah, so so Sam and Daniel need to sort of figure out what's going on, and Gerwin tells him about Kendra. I don't remember if she says she says Kendra's going to know more, but I'm not sure she reveals. No, she doesn't reveal ahead of time that absolutely not. Kendra had a, a gold. So David, I think we talked about this before the episode. Gwold, <sighs> right? So Kendra pronounces it Gwold. Everyone else pronounces it Gwold. All the good guys say it really uh, the shorthand version. No, I've I've been having this debate going back over all of these episodes whether we're supposed to judge how much we like someone based on how badly they mispronounce things. <laughs> and I just don't think the show is actually caring that much. And the the big one is whether gold is three syllables or two syllables, or maybe even one syllable. O'Neill especially does one syllable. I think Daniel mostly uses one syllable too. And it feels like the kind of, you know, the kind of disparaments that you would use maybe like during World War II, where, you know, you, you had certain derogatory names for Japanese and Germans. This feels like the same sort of thing that like, you know, we're going to disrespect you by giving you a bad name. I do think it's three syllables. It's Guawuld. That's how Teal'c pronounced it in the first one. I believe that's how Kendra pronounces it here. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's hard to say. So, but I love it. I love how it rolls off the tongue. So I'm probably always going to try to say the full thing, but I can understand it if other people do not want to go to that bother. Teal'c clearly tries. Everyone else, I think it might just be kind of random. <laughs> And yeah, I would be kind of curious whether the directors actually told the actors, okay, pronounce it this way, or whether they were just like, you know what, we're just going to do whatever. <laughs> so it was actually kind of a nice uh, dramatic scene where Kendra is, uh, has the hand device on this boy, and Daniel's like, no, don't do it. Because of course, he's only seen the hand device be something that you use for for evil, and that you use to knock somebody out or hurt them or, or torture them. You know, knock them back. Yeah, torture them. Yeah. Raid their memories. Very multi purpose, this hand device, <laughs> right? But it also heals. So. Yeah. And then they get to, you know, they get to talk to her and they get to, you know, she, they find out that she had a kid of gold in her. She's kind of interesting. She, uh, she talks to Weather, I guess, to find out what she's supposed to do. And I'm pretty sure we're not supposed to take that at face value. Like we're not supposed to think there actually is an alien or a god who's talking to her through the weather. It's just kind of random. I don't know. There could be some kind of memory implant that she's not aware of. There could be some kind of connection to some kind of communication with the uh, Asgardians. Could be. Could be. I don't think the show is that smart, but okay. Yeah. Or she could just be crazy. (laughs) Right. Or highly intuitive or something. They don't explain that. I was really confused by this scene. Okay. Okay. This was all going kind of as I expected. I seemed okay. I wasn't actually sure of the gender of the person she was healing, but anyway. But then she started talking to the Thunder and I'm going, what is going on here? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand. I found it quite a shocking thing. And I also found it a little strange how much they kind of treat Kendra's character like uh, maybe a witch or someone who right. knows yep. the old stories or something. But she's only been on this planet for a decade. So it seems almost strange a little bit. Like, I could never quite tell what they were trying to do with Kendra's character in this plot line. Because from basically this point on, they kind of just keep having the same conversation with her over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just seems strange, but it was really, this was the turning point where it's like, okay, this character looked interesting. This character looked interesting. I'm confused. I'll buy that there's a conflict inside her and this is all this internal thing. The big thing is that it comes back to the arc with Daniel and Sharae and Skara of can we save them or not? And they've kind of gone back and forth a little bit about that so far with 
Kowalski, well, yeah, we can get it out of him, but no, we can't. And so now, okay, maybe human technology can't save these people, but maybe alien technology can. I liked how they played that with Daniel. I liked how, you know, Michael Shanks played those scenes, Mm -hmm. getting hope. And he's always, this is something that's always in his mind. And that makes sense. And that makes, I think I like that about his character, that he's dealing with that still, still very much wants to save his wife. And, you know, this brings that forward. Whether Kendra's character is entirely coherent or not is another question. But I do think she plays into that, that arc nicely in this episode. I really quite liked her line, I knew my beast. Yeah. 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 And I love the backstory that she was sort of able to subconsciously manipulate that gold inside her. Yes. That, that I thought was just wonderful. Yes. And then Jackson went and started mansplaining to her about things and I got very confused. <laughs> Why are you try telling the someone who's been a gold what a Jaffa is? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> right. Oh yeah. I like that when she's like, I know what a Jaffa is. <laughs> that was nice. And then she was like, well, no, all Jaffa should just die. And while I'm not sure I was convinced that she was that bloodthirsty well, I guess she's supposed to have a lot of hatred in her heart for the gold. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I'm not sure was, the actress was really able to sell that because she's supposed to be a nice person too. And you know, having that kind of level of rage is again something you associate more with kind of prestige shows where things are more unpleasant than this show where things are are generally not all that unpleasant. So I'm not sure that really got sold. But one thing about the scene is they don't say for sure whether normal people can actually survive gold implantation, right? They make it clear that this might be a special case. So maybe there is an hope for Skara and, and Shere. I thought it was strange though, because I think clearly Thor is very clear that there's yeah. hope, there's possibility, this works. No, that's true. This probably <laughs> should not fail because I'm not supposed to be killing humans. Yeah. Like everything about this says there is hope, this can be done, you're fine, you just have to get them and then figure out this technology. Yeah. Okay. We have a solution pending whenever the writers want to use it. They kept just bringing it up again and up again in this episode. Is it okay? Is it okay? Is it okay? Jackson, there's a path here. It's okay. We'll figure it out. Yeah, they wanted to generate some dramatic tension, but you're not buying it. But in any case, so so they have, that, they have that discussion with her, and then she decides to come with them. Well, there's another scene with like the runes. I don't remember if there's anything all that important that happens. I just liked that uh, Kendra said she would say like a magic chant to get them into the cave. And I don't believe this show ever does... Magic, magic. Uh, there, although there's plenty of techno magic, but you know, obviously, it's some kind of phonic key that there's technology right. that she has to reproduce the phonic key to get them in. Sure, she also has them stand in a circle for a few minutes for no reason that I can tell either, though. <laughs> window dressing. <laughs> I think the next part is that they just go wandering, right, to go try to find this place. And there's that unusual scene where Daniel and Sam are arguing. And Sam is like saying, well, she, she's just wasting our time, which felt very uncharacteristic for Sam to be sort of arguing against believing in someone and going along with someone. Everything about that scene just came off as kind of weird to me. I didn't quite understand what they were getting at. Yeah. And I also get the sense that, you know, they found this outdoor location with basically wooden trestles for water. And so they're arguing that they're going around in circles, that they're lost. But while they're arguing that, they're actually traversing an extremely straight path along this water. I'm like, you're not lost. Just follow the thing. (laughs) That's probably the difference between, you know, the script versus what people found place for outdoor uh, shooting outdoor uh, scenes for the for the show. Uh, But I also think that's like they had a couple minutes where they didn't quite know what to do with themselves. You know, the the episode's going to have a certain number of minutes. We got to fill all those minutes. And this felt like filler. It did. And it's unfortunate because you don't see a lot of Sam and, and Daniel scenes. And this is the kind of thing where, again, where the show doesn't have that much self-awareness that they just don't know what to do with these characters sometimes they don't know 
want to give them any deeper characterizations than what they have. And, you know, I like it when we can get it, but we don't get it very often because of this sort of thing, I think. And so, yeah, this is, it's going to be great if we could have a better scene with Sam and Daniel, but we can't. So we move on. But yeah, so the A plot kind of ends when they go and they, they find the labyrinth's exit and Kendra kind of overcomes her fear to kind of help them go into it. And she also opens the door with, again, that that chant and, and knowing where to put her hand, I guess. And that's kind of the end of that plot. I really quite like the one line. I'm happy I brought up Dune in the uh, last podcast. Yeah. Because this time I get to say, fear is the greatest enemy. I must face my fear. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I feel good. If I get one Dune reference per podcast, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. There's also one one other kind of thing coming up that's slightly relevant to Dune. Oh, I missed it. You'll have to let me know. <laughs> then the, the B plot, I guess, although it's kind of the A plot, but take them in order, is that Teal'c and O'Neill get sent to this labyrinth, underground labyrinth, which I guess maybe has like caverny kind of spaces to it. It's got an underground river, but it's also got kind of rusting concrete walls and these weird lamps to it. So again, I think the people in charge of finding the places for them to shoot found the best they could on a certain budget, but it it felt kind of shabby to me, that whole thing, but it is what it is. It worked for me. Like there's an entrance area, there's a cave system, there's an exit area. I was perfectly okay with it. It looked looked good to me. (laughs) It did the job. They find out that Tilk's staff weapon doesn't work, but O'Neill's machine gun does. That's the Dune thing I was talking about, where the energy shield, which actually came up with the uh, the Nox thing too, with the Apophis's personal shield that only slow things could penetrate, uh, okay. um, like bows and arrows, or arrows, but not bullets. Here, energy weapons won't work, but the guns are primitive enough to work. But backtracking to the beginning of this plotline, we get to see Thor! Okay. <laughs> Not quite as photogenic as um, Chris Hemsworth. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a high bar. Come on. That is a high bar, right? It is a high bar. He's got this really deep voice. They do what they can with it. But the costume was also kind of ridiculous. But, you know, just in, in keeping with the whole thing. And uh, O'Neill is like, this is the answering machine, which I thought was fun. Yep. And he expects Teal to know what an answering machine is, which... I'm not sure he would at this point, but okay. What I loved about the recording, though, is we're in the sort of Norse mythology, warrior culture settings, and then Thor starts talking, <laughs> and he's just coming off as this bureaucratic person running a space fleet, and I just I love it. I loved all of that dialogue. It was so good. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's true. Regarding this point and this bit of our bureaucracy, we've sent notices to the Gould system lords and they're aware. <laughs> Proper notice has been given. It's I, I love the speech. It's so beautifully anachronistic. Yeah, it's a weird combination of things because it's like they still some sort of alien race pretending to be Thor. Presumably the aliens don't actually look like that, although who knows? But then he's doing that for the sake of another alien race, which also knows that it's a masquerade. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird little, weird, interesting little, little, little wrinkle how they did it. We posted this system with warning buoys and no trespassing signs, and you came anyway. <laughs> so you're just going to get what you get. <laughs> Was this the first reference to the Gould system lords? You know, I had that question as well. Maybe. I don't remember it. I think Teal'c might have mentioned it in an episode that... You didn't see, although I'm not positive. Well, I mean, Gua'uld by itself is a new word. It's not, it wasn't from the movie. System words is definitely not something that was in the movie because there was only one right. Gua'uld there. But I don't remember when it came up. It would be interesting if we come to subsequent episodes where it is brought up in discussions in the uh, SGC as if it's a new thing. We'll answer that question. I was looking for it. I was, I was listening for it and I haven't 
heard it yet. So it might be that they haven't mentioned it yet, but I thought they did. I thought they did. This was a good introduction for it either way. You think so? Okay. Oh, yeah. Because they did, you know, they mentioned that there's Apophis and they mentioned this Ra. And of course, they mentioned a bunch of other Gwold. You know, uh, Marduk was the one that Kendra mentioned, who must have been the Gwold that, that got her um, implanted with uh, with someone. And then Pelops and then a bunch of others. So we know that there are more, but I'm not sure how much we've heard about exactly what, what their organization is, what, what anything else is going on. So. Is Marduk Babylonian? Right. Yep. One question I have, which I'm going to try and not actually think about it too much, is whether everything that they discuss is supposed to be stuff that was on Earth five, 6,000 years ago. I don't know if there were anyone actually writing in runes 5,000 years ago. Okay. That language might be much newer than that, but I don't know what, if that means the Asgardians had visited Earth after the Stargate was buried. So there's, there's some questions I have there which may or may not matter whatsoever. Right. Well, we know that at least the Gould have spaceships in addition to Stargates, so other people could have spaceships too. Although it did seem to be pretty definitive that when they buried the gate from Ra, Ra did not bother to come back in his spaceship. Yeah. True. I'm not going to think about that too hard either. <laughs> That's the answering machine message. And then there's some dramatic scenes where they've got these shots of this creature, this reptilian creature, and you only see a part of it at first. And then you kind of see its head and it's got these big teeth. And of course, I think Teal'c also says that, you know, somebody's been chowing down on other bones and things in this thing. So it's all supposed to be very menacing and mysterious what's going on out there. But then they just, you know, then the creature just kind of shows up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, all, you know, it's also kind of nice. Like he's, oh, and the creature has a very deep voice. Now, did you all look at the credits for this episode? I only noticed it on the second viewing. No. And going, oh my, it's James Earl Jones. <laughs> <laughs> it's James Earl Jones, yep. <laughs> There's just a touch of Darth Vader there, just yeah. just for a couple lines here and there. Right. <laughs> wow. Yep. You know, and and I've seen this episode enough that I I really you know I knew that voice, I recognized that voice, but it was only when I was watching it for for the podcast that I realized, wait, 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 wait. I was like, oh, of course it's him. Yeah, yeah. But to the, I, I do think they handled that scene well, where he's like, okay, I'm going to order around the Jaffa. Okay, I can't order around the Jaffa. I'm just going to kill you, and I can kill you because your weapons don't work. He's very confident of that, and then O'Neill kind of kills him. And you know, they do the, the the usual thing that everybody does in TVs and movies, where like, oh, he's dead, and then you know they're not really dead. Right. I thought it was funny that when the Unis came back, it or he tried to negotiate, and they just shot it again. They just shot him more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That was good. That was fun. Yeah, well, and the fun scene with Teal'c and O'Neill, where Teal'c is like, he's dead, I believe. <laughs> like, wait, wait, do you believe it or is it real? Like, then fun little back and forth about that. Nope. Nope, you're wrong. If this episode does have filler, that was great filler. Yeah. <laughs> I really quite like that, that small banter between them as they discuss the uh, Unas. And I had the brief thought that, wait a second, so the Unas is from a species that also is from the Gould's origin planet? Yep. Right. To which I came to the conclusion that these are all Trill from Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> Trills, yeah. Evil Trill. <laughs> yeah, a little violent. <laughs> Another interesting thing about this is that this is probably the second time Teal'c has mentioned evolution mm -hmm. as part of... Um, what he knows from the Gwold. And I think back then, the writers of the show were part of what I think was sort of a common consensus at the time that, of course, everyone in the world knows about evolution mm -hmm. and believes in it. And it's just so self-evident and common that, you know, of course, we can write people from other planets believing in evolution because everyone does, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, what I think we've seen in more recent years is that, no, there are actually quite a few people even on Earth who don't believe in evolution. And in hindsight, I think the idea that 
Tilke would have ever been taught about evolution or find out about evolution from his quote-unquote gods who are supposed to be, you know, gods, uh, divine beings who are more powerful than, than any mortal could ever be. In hindsight, doesn't really add up. My belief is that they were not taught by the Gould that... But then who taught him? Things were found out surreptitiously and passed along as rumors among the Javas. It's all myth. Okay. And legends. Yes. Right. Uh, sure, but even, you know, just the fact that that information was around seems a little weird that in a society that's totally controlled by the Gould, but okay, all right, I'll, I'll buy it. Or they could have matter-of-factly explained to the humans that they were breeding into Jaffa what they were doing to them, and yeah. they could have made conclusions from that. You could sort of make it work, but I do think, David, you had been interested at one point in uh, one of our previous podcasts about whether humans were the first hosts for the Gould, and I was holding my tongue because this episode does answer that question. It says, no, humans were not first. Here's the first one. Yeah. And I'd like to say, I quite liked the costume. I think they did a perfectly good job. It wasn't super dramatic in terms of what it could emotionally communicate, but I thought it was a nice looking chunk of plastic. That's why they got James Earl Jones, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he was he was a perfectly serviceable, uh, intimidating alien creature. Sure. Right. It wasn't exactly a creature that wanted to convey a lot of nuance. <laughs> true. It was just hostile. That's true. And bossy. <laughs> it might be that I've just seen this episode enough that I, I know to think about it, but the very first time I saw O'Neill shooting the Unas, I was like, you know, when's he going to run out of bullets? When's he going to run out of bullets? And they do kind of come back to that at the end and say, you know, hey, we don't have that much. That was the big thing at the end where they, you know, they come to the Thor's hammer and go, oh, hey, we've got Thor's hammer. You know, we're between a hammer and a Unas. Is that a, <laughs> is that a phrase? <laughs> you know, hey, we're going to run out of bullets. We can't actually stop him, but we can't go through big dramatic moment, big dramatic conflict with them that how are we going to stop this? And I I think that scene was actually pretty nice where Teal was, you know, wrestling with this Unas and managed to push it into the red area where Thor's hammer is working and hurting himself as he's trying to stop the, the Unas and, and the other people see it. This is where the, the two plots come together. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like that whole that whole bit. And they eventually managed to kill him just with Thor's hammer. Tilke has proven himself very good at pushing people into energy fields. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. That should be on his resume. And to be fair, it wasn't the energy field that killed him. It was just the bullets that killed him after the energy field took out the ghoul so he couldn't heal anymore. So we never got to meet what the Unas is actually like. What the Unas actually was, right. 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 Yep. It does feel to me like they felt like they had to lampshade that because other hosts survive. Right. Yeah. Then we're all done, right? Then, hey, Teal'c is alive. O'Neill is alive. Everyone else is alive. And all the dramatic tension just evaporates. Then the episode has to end in the next two minutes. <laughs> yeah, I also thought, I mean, and David, you'll probably want to talk about this as well, that like, just leave him there for a few days, right? You can <laughs> bring back your scientists. You can study Thor's hammer, see if there's an off switch on that side somewhere, maybe. Mm-hmm. There are other, you know, runes somewhere that talk about how to operate it. You know, you have all the time in the world to figure this out. But you've also only got three minutes. You've got options. It was the most episodic TV episode-y thing I have seen in quite a while. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. <laughs> we need to return everything to the status quo right now. And like we'll see in the next episode, we're going to introduce something and then we're going to take it away because we're mean. <laughs> <laughs> and and boy, did they just wrap that up way too quickly. It was just 
ridiculous uh, a function of the time the show was made but i'm assuming they'll learn something and really the writers can always say they went back there studied it and fixed it so hey i am also extremely dubious that the asgardians that had set up this technology to remove gold from hosts would leave it vulnerable to a simple blast a single simple blast from an energy staff from a staff weapon yeah yeah when you start thinking about this episode it all really falls apart like not just that part but the whole thing <laughs> the fact that it's easy to destroy like that the fact that their way of dealing with Gwawuld and helping the hosts is to strand the Gwawuld but with its full powers in a labyrinth such that the only way to get the host out is to have the Gwawuld decide to commit suicide yep which we know Gwawuld would never want to do because they're totally full of themselves egotistical egotistical yeah that's one way to put it yeah it seems much more likely that they would commit suicides to drag the host into death with them out of spite. That's what they would do. And I talked about this with the Nox as well, that the writers really had to arrange things in a very careful manner to get the story that they wanted out of this. <laughs> I liked it though. Like this is an ethics question and this was the Asgardian solution to the ethics problem. Yeah. And it's the best they could do. And and I, I kind of liked it in that regard. I thought it made sense. Okay. I mean, there is the problem that what's stopping the ghoul from just flying to this planet? That's entirely ignored always. Yeah. But definitely as a, as a sort of ethics criminal justice problem, I quite like the Asgardian solution as at least an interesting compromise. <laughs> okay. Alrighty. Right. So we do need to talk a little bit about uh, the decision, which is that um, once they see that destroying Thor's hammer is the only way to get them out, you know, Daniel says, but Sheree and Skara. And Jack says, Teal'c's here now. Teal'c nobly offers to just stay behind. Uh, as Andrew said, you know, maybe we don't have to do this today. Just stay there. <laughs> Because <laughs> of course he would. But Jack yep. says, no, you're part of this family now and we're not leaving you behind. And then Daniel gets to actually do the deed uh, of... Yeah, he makes Daniel do yeah. it. <laughs> which I thought was funny. Jerk. <laughs> you know, this was me after, what, just last podcast saying, oh, and the team never argues. They all work together. <laughs> and then we get all these episodes where they argue. So, you know, that, that's on me. But, you know, Daniel doesn't really hesitate. He almost doesn't really hesitate at all before going ahead and, and doing this, which I thought was an interesting choice. Yeah, I think Jack's argument about Teal'c being part of the team convinced him. Yep. This is not the last time that Daniel is going to back down. Back down, yeah. Yep, yep. From his ethical or whatever <laughs> considerations for the sake of the team. Yeah. Just one more thing that bugs me and then we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't ask any of the natives either. Like, we're going to destroy your protection and not ask any of you whether we should do it or not. Yeah, I really don't like that. They said, oh, the ghouls haven't been here. They, they've probably given up and won't ever come here again. And, you know, Kendra showed up in the last 10 years. And, yeah. And their idea that like, oh, well, if you just block up the entrance, block the exit, whatever, and so the ghoul can't get out that way. But then you're... Com yeah, then you're condemning the host to death. Right. Like, no, this is not an ethical solution for it. I, okay, fine. They needed to fig leaf it somehow, and they did, but... <laughs> It is unfortunate. So, you know, again, like, just stop thinking about it, Andrew. Just go with it. Just go with the ethical conundrums that they actually discuss in the in the episode. And it's fine. And yeah, it, I like the episode. I, I'm, I'm fond of it. Yeah. All right. So Daniel hands over a box of Voyager-like pictographs and From stuff. Sagan Institute. Just in case Thor and his people ever come back again for the natives of this planet to hand over. Just kind of leaving that to 
possible route of communication out there for them. There's no good reason Stargate Command might not visit these people once a week and let them come home if they want. The SG-1 is is first contact, yep. but there's nothing to say that there might not be yeah. follow-up missions by some of the higher-numbered teams or something. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of other teams. Yep, it's true. And did they mention specialization of those teams? When they originally discussed them? No, I don't think they did. Nope. But, you know, there's no reason not to think that there could be, you know, like more exploration-oriented teams. They're not just all coming in with guns blazing on every planet. Right. So, yeah. But yeah, certainly leaving open the possibility of more contact with these people and with uh, Thor mm-hmm. in the future. And then making a joke about it starting to rain. That was how they ended the episode. That's, uh, yeah, <laughs> moving on. Okay, the torment of Tantalus. David, would you do the honors? Watching old army records, Jackson discovers that the Stargate was used in 1945. After breaking protocols to talk to Catherine, Jackson realizes that her fiancé Ernest went through the gate. They follow and find him old and naked, and having discovered a place where ancient alien cultures met, including Thor's, where they use the periodic table as a language. Unfortunately, the very next storm destroys the last broken parts of the DHD, and the team has to make MacGyver, Frankenstein? Eh, something, a way to dial home. Good use of MacGyver. Happy to help. <laughs> okay, so we get to see Dr. Catherine Langford again, um, and she has quite a lot to do in this episode, and that is pleasing to me. The Catherine Langford in the movie is played by uh, Vivica Lindfors, who I actually checked her IMDb. It seems that she actually died like a movie a year after the movie came out. So even if they had wanted to have the same actress, they wouldn't be able to play it in the show because it's got in 1985. I did like that actress in the movie because she had sort of a more exotic air to her. Like she had an accent, which turned out to be a Swedish accent. But there you go. So the actress here is Elizabeth Hoffman. Also like quite a bit. I also thought she did a really good job. She was more sort of Americana, like she doesn't really have an accent at all. And she has a normal sort of, I guess, background in the U.S. Again, adjusting the show for the retcon. Mm -hmm. I do really like how they retconned it together. You know, they'd already retconned Samantha Carter as being part of the program already. Mm -hmm. And now they're retconning something, something more. But so sometimes those retcons feel very awkward and, and forced, but this one actually thought they, again, they did a really good job putting that together. Well, I think it helps that we have Daniel as a bridge, even though this Daniel is different slightly from movie Daniel. Right. But I think it does kind of help to tie the, uh, Catherine Langfords together. I'm I'm just so interested with all the backstory we get with this. Back in the flashbacks before the film of the initial Stargate use was made, her father is directing the research project and she's dating a young scientist slash officer, Ernest Littlefield, and she actually suggests to him that they use direct current rather than alternating current to prevent the gate from shaking so much. So I don't know if she was supposed to have a degree back then or if she got it after her father died after this thing but anyway she had a clear mind back then but was using it in the service of the men in her life um (laughs) and i was interested uh also when she was serving tea to her father and uh the guy she's dating apparently she's trying to keep this relationship undercover but it looks like her father disapproves whether he doesn't like Littlefield that much or whether he just does not want to lose his unpaid assistant is not clear either. <laughs> but there are just all kinds of little points like that through the flashbacks that I really enjoyed. Or if I don't enjoy seeing that kind of <laughs> situation, I thought they were interesting. I love me a show with some good flashbacks. I really liked this episode. I don't know if it's my favorite episode, but it's close. <laughs> I love a lot of the acting in it. I love the writing of it. 
all of the dialogue and all the conversations these people have, I think work so well and they play it so well among the wide variety of actors in all of the flashbacks as well as in the future. I quite like the Catherine and Ernest dialogues, which are all very different, but they are interesting in their own ways. I love O'Neill being very dry in mm-hmm. the first scenes we have him saying, oh yeah, nothing piques my interest more than repeated failure. <laughs> or the even better line, Oh, please. The Pentagon's lost entire countries. Entire countries. Yep. yep. I just love some of the lines. <laughs> yeah, I laughed out loud at that one. <laughs> and in in that first flashback where we see Catherine and Ernest talking, they're talking about their relationship and they're talking about the science and they're just intermixing it. Yep. Goes back and forth. Yep. And they just bounce back and forth beautifully yep. in a wonderful way. Where they're trying to sort of mm-hmm. keep up with each other of what the subject of the conversation actually is. I really liked it. I think she thought that the shaking was good, but she wanted the DC current to stop the generators from exploding. Mm -hmm. I'm just so happy with a lot of the start of this episode and even how long it takes in this episode to get to a Stargate. Yes. It's just wonderful. A beautiful backstory and beautifully built episode. Yeah, you can definitely see they put a lot of work into the script on this one, whereas they don't always put that much work in. (laughs) Not always. But yeah, they definitely did a lot of work owning this and making it natural and making it interesting, the interplay that you mentioned, David. I also just wanted to mention about the uh, prestige drama thing. You know, a lot of actors in here are really good, but you have to A, have the material to bring that out, and B, you have to have other actors in the scene playing with you that are at that same level. It's very difficult to give a uh, solo, you know, master level performance if other people around you are doing, you know, situation comedy. Just because these people are in a little science fiction show does not mean that they're not good actors. It depends on on uh, the material that you have to work with and your colleagues. And in some episodes like this, you can see some of that coming through where they are really rising to the challenge. And so, yeah, this is probably my favorite episode of the season, although maybe Enemy Within. Hmm. Have to think about that. But anyway, it's a really good one. Yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention was, again, that first scene with Catherine and Daniel Jackson, when they have to kind of go through all the bits from the movie that they have to hook up to here. Like, (laughs) why didn't we have Catherine come back? Why didn't Daniel come tell her? And it's funny because they were coming up, you know, all of my objections, all of the things that I would be, hey, you know, what what about this? And they just kind of knocked them all down one after another. (laughs) And they gave that actress a chance to sort of be snippy. With Daniel, which people weren't really snippy with Daniel very much. So I, I did like that as well. I do like the way they, they handled that. They should be. <laughs> yeah, right. He's kind of a jerk <laughs> in a lot of ways. So, you know, yeah, it does make sense that, that she would be annoyed. And then that one scene with them all in the SGC and O'Neill coming in and greeting her very warmly. And then Carter coming in and also greeting her very warmly. And then her having that good old- Which was really weird to me. Yeah. Because as far as I had understood, they had never met each other before. Well, they definitely had. She just wasn't shown on screen in the movie. Right, right. I had forgotten that they had mentioned that. But to me, it's like, well, why are you hugging her? You don't know her. <laughs> <laughs> Especially even this time around, you know, seeing that, you know, Sam herself is a 
retcon. Right. Even though she wasn't in the movie. And, you know, that doesn't quite match up exactly. Like, Sam probably really should have been there when Daniel was there in the movie to make that really work. But, okay. But, you know, they did match it up as well as they could in this episode. And, again, I just like that it felt like a family in that scene, of course, except for poor Hammond, who was justifiably annoyed at all this. I was like, (laughs) that's also a nice kind of callback to the earlier episodes of the season where Hammond was more the bad guy, the heavy, and now he gets to choose some scenery again. And, again, just all those little elements fit together. I just love that scene. Well, I really, really loved, he was chewing the scenery and being mad at Daniel for the unauthorized contact. (laughs) You know, then uh, Langford says to Jack that General Hammond sounds worse than General West back in the 40s. (laughs) And Jack says, ah, he's a teddy bear. (laughs) (laughs) And then he shows that he is by like, yep, you convinced me. We're going to do it. Yes, exactly. He proves it. So many of the nice little elements of the show come together for that. And again, they were were doing all those things for the sake of the plot because you needed all these elements to come together for the plot to go forward. But it was also a really nice character moment. And sometimes I think in the show, a lot of times in the show, you only get those character moments if they are in service of you know, the standard kind of plot that they're going through. When they nail it, they nail it. So I did like it. The only thing that seemed a little strange was she had security clearance a year and a half ago, and now she has none. And that transition seemed a little strange, but I suppose her clearance went away with West. But that makes sense. That was a little rough. But I would agree, though, the time they spent in exposition and retconning added to the episode instead of taking away from it, which I think works really well. Right. It could so easily have been info dumping, but they made it part of the character development, and I loved it. The one thing versus the movie, which is fun of course, is in the flashbacks, they're only looking for six symbols, not seven. So mm-hmm. apparently the whole MacGuffin of the movie doesn't matter here. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is okay because no one cares about it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They also have upped the ante. Instead of discussing hundreds of combinations with 39 symbols, they're now saying hundreds of millions. So I'm assuming eventually they'll get to the realization that it's over a billion. But they're not quite there yet. <laughs> You're right. Someday. <laughs> Someday. Maybe during universe. So yeah, so then they go to the to the planet, which I don't think ever gets a name. And it doesn't take them long. It's actually uh, sooner than I was expecting that Ernest shows up. They're just having that first conversation in the in the gate room and Ernest shows up and you know there's a bit of business about him being naked. Although only Sam seems to mind all that much, which I thought was funny. And then he comes out and... The others are startled, but right. yeah, Sam, Sam steps away when he's going around giving hugs. Right, right. Yeah, no, that was great. That was really good. And then O'Neill is like, Daniel, do something. And what does Daniel do? He like points a finger. Like that's what he does. That's so funny. I do like, and I want to say it now, just it doesn't get lost later. He starts out being sort of hunched and not saying anything and... Very, very unsocialized. And then there's actually points in the episode, if you're looking carefully, where he gradually, he regains it back. Just slowly transitions. I, I really liked it. So I, I wanted to, to point that out. But then at the first time, and then, you know, so he's totally gobsmacked by Catherine and he, and he runs out again. So the Catherine gets to talk for a while about how, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I think it was really nice that it's also very sort of standard for meet cutes that don't go the way you expect. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's super innovative, but they handled it well. They wrote it well and they paced it well to have them have a little bit of difficulty before they, before they get back together. You know, first they have to go find Ernest. And I think this is the beginning of another really nice thing in this episode where Ernest is giving his diary to Daniel to read out loud for us to hear. Mm-hmm. Whether that makes a whole lot of sense or not, why doesn't he just have him read it? But having sort of Michael Shanks read these things out loud, it's a nice dramatic technique, I think, to to give us that information while still making it a bit more a bit more compelling. Because again, Michael Shanks has the nice voice, and he's able to to say these things as if he's learning them at the same time we are. So again, I I did like all that. 
They do that a bunch of times throughout this episode where they he's talking about what happened to him. And I guess the first real revelation is that he was here all alone. So that's the explains why he's a bit, you know, he's a bit rough. I really quite like Keen Curtis, who plays Ernest. I, I think he just did a great job of mm-hmm. he did a great job. He sort of coming it. out of his shell and going back from not talking to anyone for decades and decades to learning how to socialize and talk again. And I really quite like the nice transition that he goes through. And even the dialogue he has with Catherine, where he's had this fantasy relationship with his version of her. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he has to try and come to terms with the reality of her and that's really hard and it's just really well done i loved it that scene where he says so real to her and she says i am real and then he goes on and he's talking about we had a wonderful life together you forgave me long ago (laughs) i didn't know and she says no i didn't oh that was so yeah that's a kind of moment that you don't see very often at all and just the jarring of expectations and reality and his coping mechanisms and (laughs) her coping mechanisms back on earth and you know she moved on with her her life and he never moved on from her you see the conflict between them and they don't immediately hug and make up that takes the whole rest of the episode (laughs) but there is a lot of hugging in this episode there is more than usual yep (laughs) that one scene where daniel is reading and the camera pans over Ernest listening to it and then we pan a little further and we get Catherine behind him that was a really nice cinematic moment for that because again we're not hearing Ernest say it we're hearing Daniel say it but we get that you know so Catherine is learning about Ernest thinking she was alive from Daniel they used the Castro and ice cream right because she had been lied to her father had told her that you know he just died in some random lab explosion and told her that you know the Stargate system never worked told her that his notes were all there were and she gets all these revelations about how her father was lying to her all along for however many years and whether he was doing it for her good as his fatherly perceived (laughs) vision of her good would be or whether it was just easier for him or who knows but she's got a whole lot to handle and cope with during this episode and i liked how the actress did that but she did you know you could see a lot of expressions flash across her face yeah it's very good we've talked about how in in other episodes the show has to make some questionable decisions have its characters or its races make questionable decisions in order to get to the plot that it wants. And I think one of the nice things about this episode is they do manage to make this dramatic situation of, well, we lost him for 50 years, mostly seem reasonable. And all the people involved were generally making reasonable decisions, except for the one dead guy. Like they put a lot of the questionable decisions off on her father. Mm -hmm. And that's actually kind of nice because it means nobody else has to take responsibility for them. Everybody else can be reasonable throughout. And yet you can still have an unreasonable (laughs) situation going on. So I was like, hey, hey, that was actually kind of clever of them to do it like that. He was kind of a jerk their father about all of this and you know he never told her he never told her anything about this well okay we don't have to worry about it he's gone <laughs> so yeah Another cute bit of possible cleverness, the the Stargate Science has an interesting addition. Apparently, the book and library that they're in is all written in the periodic table. Uh, it's funny that Ernest says that there are 146 elements and Catherine says, no, we've only found 111. And then Ernest says, there was only 90 when he left. 90, yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that's actually true, but it is funny that the 90th element is thorium. Oh, <laughs> oh that might have been a reference, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Okay. <laughs> 
the reality now is actually since this has aired, yeah. there are 118 elements that we actually know about. Yeah, so yeah, we, we have made progress, but we haven't gotten to 146 <laughs> yet. No, but that was also the moment where I noticed that that Ernest was talking in complete sentences and standing up straight and everything else, and again to show that his his progression in that. But yeah, again, like using that kind of unrelated bit of knowledge, bit of exposition to show how much time has passed, yep. to show that he's better. Again, it's just to show doing a lot of things at once. I really liked him. I do have my doubts that you could write a, a common language out of atomic weights like that. I think that's what math is for. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this summer I narrated a novella for LibriVox of a 1950s story by H.B. Piper called Omnilingual, where Earth scientists were trying to translate the dead languages of Mars Grim. with no Grim. surviving Martians. And that's relevant to what happens here. And I believe it wouldn't be a total language just with elements, but that could be a starting point for correspondences and getting to further knowledge. The one thing that occurred to me is like, made me think of Unicode, which is an attempt by people, humans, to unify all of the characters, all of the, the written languages of the world. And it's huge and it's ugly and it's full of compromises and full of historical anomalies. And I'm like, you know, you compare that against, oh yeah, just elements, elements from the periodic table. Like, I think someone says, and Catherine says in the middle, oh, this is from high school chemistry. I think what that's telling us is, yeah, the writers of this show had high school chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they're basing this on. And it's just, it can't bear the weight of what they want to portray and what they can scientifically write about. But no, okay, yeah. You could argue that, yeah, there are many more pages and there would be more explication of what that actually means later on as well. But I, I think that's what happened. I think that totally people with high school chemistry knowledge wanted to write a scene about wondrous scientific and technological and cultural database. And this is as far as they got. This also gives us a moment where Jackson gets to put his foot in his mouth and a little bit of clever dialogue where Jackson says, this could take a lifetime. And Ernest quietly says, more. Yeah, that was yeah. That was fun. Yeah. He's already spent his lifetime and failed. I also think this is this is a chance where Michael Shanks gets to chew the scenery a bit and you know show more of his James Spader impression. And you know it's nice, it's nice to kind of see how that goes. And and so the device looks a lot like a Stargate device. It's got the same sort of orange hemisphere on the top. The, the other thing I want to talk about was the music during this. It felt very Star Trekky, kind of wondrous Star Trekky, wonders of the universe kind of moment where you were seeing all this. And I did like that. I did like the, the dramatics of it, of having this wondrous scientific moment happen. And all the people acting like they were very surprised and delighted by this. Even if I think the science was a little iffy, I think the scene was very nice. Well, this is the hub of the Federation, as far as we can tell. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So now, now we knew that there were two alien species, at least. And now there's uh, now four. At least three more, right? Presumably because it's not the gold. Yeah, and we see the runes on the wall, which I amused my son. He was very amused that those actually are real runes. <laughs> I couldn't translate them, but hey. Yeah. So I don't know if anyone actually could try and translate that. And then we saw the other alien text languages, which made even less sense. But hey, they were cool and they gave the effect well. Well, so they find two two things going on, and I don't remember exactly which order anymore, but they find that the Stargate isn't going to work, so they need to MacGyver more things to get the Stargate to work. And then they also, um, Danny was saying that, no, I want to I want to stay. I want to learn this knowledge. There's two two bits of, of conflict that are going on. And, you know, there's Catherine and Ernest, but they're, they're kind of getting along a little better at that point. So you kind of know they're going to be all right by the end of the episode. But... They have this middle period, this like act two development where they're like, oh, we can just connect the defunct DHD to the Stargate and we'll all be good. Nope, it's fallen into the ocean. And so then they're going to shoot, <laughs> they're going to shoot the device, the, the knowledge device. 
and get its power source out of that. And they like shoot it once and then they give up, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, I don't at all understand how shooting the device <laughs> is supposed to make it yield up its energy unless just in a gigantic explosion, which will help nobody. <laughs> right. And they didn't tell everyone to go hide, right? So, yeah. I think it was the fastest way of showing that that thing that has lots of power can't be used. Can't be used, yeah. <laughs> this was the fastest way to get to that. <laughs> yeah, and it was the first thing that meant Daniel was putting it at risk. So there's there was two points where Daniel had to make a choice. Right. You know, he's kind of, he's pretty quick to say, yeah, go ahead, do it. Or at least, you know, give in and not fight it. But okay, so that doesn't work. So then they've got to get an energy source. And it turns out that the gate has exactly the right properties. <laughs> For this particular MacGyvering to work the second time around. Yeah. Funny thing that. I did like the line from Jack. I'm no scientist, but couldn't we use that Ben Franklin thing? <laughs> <laughs> There's one point where he says, are those atomic thingies? I like the atomic thingies. This will, a little bit of a spoiler, this will not be the first time that Jack O'Neill is intentionally dumbed down for the sake of comedy. You know, this is a man who's presumably pretty smart, and yet he's made to be a, a buffoon about science quite a bit in order to- Oh, I think he's putting it on. We do think? Oh, okay. okay. Oh, abso- absolutely. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense. I think he finds scientists kind of annoying. <laughs> So he makes fun of them. He's the jock who actually knows enough and he's just okay. is just playing them. You know, I think you're right because we know that he was using his home telescope to look at stars and stuff yeah. before he got recalled. So he does have an interest in science. You're right. That's much more charitable than I was giving the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. We'll, we'll go with that. We'll see going forward. With the scene with the CGI of the lightning hitting the, the big building, that brings up another thing which is actually... Related but unrelated, what credits have you all been watching when you watch these episodes? What is the credit, the opening credits of the show? What do they show you? Up until this set of three episodes, when I'd been watching the credits, it was just showing the gate spinning. But I noticed watching these three episodes that you are seeing scenes from the series now uh, with characters' faces and stuff. You saw the gate spinning? Like that was it? That was all you saw? Is like the gate? Yeah. Um, the first few episodes that I watched when I was watching the credits, Yeah, you're just seeing the gate spinning and names in text on top of it. I'm not sure I've ever seen the, those particular credits. David, what, what have you been seeing for the credits? I, I think I'm seeing the same transition that, that Trish has, but I mean, I'll, I'll pay more attention next time now. That's even more interesting than what I was thinking I was going to say. So when I watched this on Showtime for the first couple of seasons, apparently this was the case for the entire run on Showtime. What I saw was a slow pan over a, an Egyptian mask that just kind of slowly, slowly, slowly went around the mask and then panned back out to show the whole mask at the end. Have you seen that credits ever? No. Neither one of you have ever seen that credits. Okay. That was the Showtime credits. Those credits huh. are, apparently they were kind of thrown in at the last minute because they didn't have a lot of time or a lot of money to do it. <laughs> it mimics the movie because the movie actually did the same thing in a more elaborate way. But when the show came out in syndication, they added in scenes from the show itself, which I think it's better. I like those scenes better. I like that, that ambiance better. It matches the show more. So it's funny that the people who watched it in syndication like a year later or however many years later got better credits than I got for having paying for, for Showtime. <laughs> it's also this weird thing about the you know, the identity of the show. Was it a Showtime show? Definitely not, but it wasn't not a Showtime show. This scene with the lightning, and there's another scene also from later on where they're jumping into the gate. 
you know, these are very iconic scenes for me from those credits, and they're from this episode, so that's why I wanted to kind of bring it up. But there are other scenes, of course, from other parts. There are scenes from the pilot in there as well. And, you know, kind of all these exciting moments where there's like action and CGI and stuff they wanted to show in the credits to show to make the show seem exciting. But it is sort of funny that like that original show has such boring credits that it's just kind of amazing that that's, that's how it all went over the years. That's it. Yeah, so the, the lightning strikes and they get the lightning and they open the gate and then a couple of people go through and then the big drama is that Jack and Daniel are trapped at the other end of the corridor and various big giant beams start to fall on them twice, I guess. But they get to eventually come out as well. I did like that that CGI of the gate kind of glitching. Yep. I don't think we've seen anything like that before on this, but you know, it's a little glitching to make it very dramatic. That, oh, are they going to make it? Are they going to make it? Of course they're going to make it. <laughs> Adding some drama to it to let us think that there's some, some tension there. And then they come through and then they can't, they can't dial the gate again. Normally the episode would end when they, when they make it through, they come out of the planet, but they did give it some more time after that to show that inability to, to get back to the planet. And I did like seeing Ernest in like regular clothing and kind of, you know, cleaned up and everything. That was nice. But this is like... The- right. It made sense to me that he had gone naked most of the time on that planet with his sure. tattered space suit. You could see at this point he was only taking it out for special yeah, occasions, yeah. <laughs> maybe the anniversary every year of when he had come through. <laughs> the good suit. Yeah. One for for Thanksgiving and and Christmas. Yeah, I did want to say a little more about Catherine and Ernest. You had said it was obvious that they were going to be back together, or at least, you know, at ease with each other. I did not find that so. I thought they did a great job of extending that tension through the episode. There was a really wonderful scene where when Daniel won't leave the map room, Ernest is explaining the torment of Tantalus, the legend, the Greek myth, to Catherine. And he says, uh, as far or as chasing your dreams goes, sometimes what we have is more important. I was a fool. And he's obviously extending a branch to Catherine and trying to get her to forgive him for real this time. And what she says is, you've suffered enough. No sense wasting more time, is there? And she's obviously rejecting him, you know, not being angry at him, maybe, but we have no relationship anymore. Just give it up. Mm -hmm. And he shrugs resignedly and goes off to try to persuade Daniel to leave. And his persuasion line is, no prize is worth attaining if you can never share it. Believe me. And he chokes up a little bit. Believe me. I know. And that was just, oh, such a great sequence. I it's a, it's a great, yeah. It was wonderful. Yeah, when you were talking about having sort of good actors and good material, that was, for me, yeah, like, yeah, the most emotional, the, kind of the best line. The crux of that episode was, you know, these two bits of plot coming together where, you know, Catherine and Ernest versus Jack, Dan Jackson, um, wanted to pursue knowledge. And this was them crossing and and making that emotional connection. And yeah, I think it, I think the, the show did it really well. And, and again, that actor just nailed that line. I took, some possible hope of their relationship. It wasn't it wasn't clear cut, I don't think, either way to me. It was we'll see if we can figure this out. But maybe I was just drowned out by so much hugginess. <laughs> yeah. Catherine and Ernest did hug at the very end, so I think she did forgive him, you know, maybe not romantically interested in him anymore, but at least, you know, right. considering him a friend again. Right. It, it was interesting. Again, I, I think um, the show tends to not stick the landing for the dramatic moments after the big climaxes have happened, and I will have plenty of examples of those to tell you in the future. <laughs> but... This one, I do kind of feel like they ran out of the good writing before they got to that last scene. I think the line that O'Neill says is uh, like, now, now you hug me or something. And I was like, well, that's not weird, but you know, like really um, awkward. 
I don't know. I just, I just felt like those ending lines did not do the same justice to the material that the rest of the episode did. And so, you know, it was just kind of, well, we need a scene with them at the end and we're just going to throw something together and it's not going to mean all that much. It's not going to have the same dramatic import that the rest of the, the show has had. Yeah, like I would also tend to agree that the, the hug scene, the hugging scene at the end with Ernest and Catherine did not seem to indicate that they were, you know, deeply in love again. That was kind of a, a fond hug at most between them. And that seemed, okay, you know, they're getting along. <laughs> they didn't build any deep significance from from that. But the hug from O'Neill to Catherine was almost a better hug, if that makes sense. Their relationship seemed stronger at that point, which makes sense. I had one thought really about the two episodes because they share a definitive pattern that I mentioned before, which is Jackson finds something really cool and then loses it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Clearly, I know from watching other of these shows, there is a progression. And currently, we're just sort of hitting a wall. There's been little bits of thing of world building going on, which is good. And I just hope we don't constantly get this. Oh, here's something cool. We lost it. Here's something cool. We lost it. Oh, There's at least a bit of both, a definitive positive progression, as well as constantly going to planets and then losing them. Oh, David. (laughs) They will gain some more technology eventually. I mean, we've got 10 seasons. Yep, lots of time. There's a lot of episodes to go, even just to get through kind of the first big arc. So progress is not going to be instantaneous. And I guess that's all I'll say about that. The the other brief question I had, which has nothing to do with this episode per se, which is Mm -hmm. there was a DHD on Earth at some point. So I'm very curious if anyone's ever going to actually find it or whether the writers are going to decide to do anything with it. But you guys can't tell me. No, no. So, oh, well. (laughs) Though it it is sort of funny, the the DHD, like this idea that you send to there are two probes, right? There's the one that goes through originally to find out whether it's okay. And then there's a second one with their supplies that goes through because presumably they don't want to put their supplies through before they know if it's worthwhile. And you see both of those in that room. The room is really cluttered, so there's not a whole lot of room for them, but they do manage to fit both of them in there. A probe is probably like a million dollars to just put together a stupid probe. And they use two of them <laughs> for every planet that they go to. Although I guess they get them back if, if they can. So, but it is sort of funny that like their way of deciding whether the DHD is working is, hey, does it look like it's there? Okay, let's do it. Hopefully their protocol algorithm gets better. And that is sort of the, another thing that I was thinking of was how they keep having to come up with dramatic reasons why things go wrong even though this is presumably a, a procedure where they have a lot of fail-safes built in because it's the military. And, you know, they just got to come up with these reasons why, oh, nope, nope, you failed this time because of this. Failed this time because of that. Oh, now we've got a, now we've got a thing to do about that. Now we got failed because of this other thing. <laughs> it is just sort of funny how the writers have to, have to keep scrambling to do that. And they did it here, too. I was always fond of this episode, but I think going through the episodes this time around, seeing your reaction, the two of you, about this, this is definitely higher up in my list than it would have been previously. And I just think that the show does what it can do well, really well here. There are things that the show doesn't do well. There are things that the show basically can't do well because of its DNA. But here they did do some really cool things. Mm-hmm. I also think that because of the way the show is set up, the background of everyone, you know, these people generally don't know each other very well. Daniel Jackson and, and Jack O'Neill did know each other from one mission, but Carter, you know, but, but not that well. And so they can't have these scenes where people have these long histories together and are interacting from those long histories. And the show kind of wrote its way around that this time around. It gave us some characters who could have that long history and could have those really emotional moments together. Kind of fun that the show said, oh, we can't do that over here, but we can do this this other way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, shows really love to to have those kind of deep history moments between characters. And they, they did manage to give us that here. But I think I'm done babbling now. So Yeah, I'll just bring up one point for the episodes we've been talking about today and for several of the previous ones. The Gould have been kind of in the background of things. 
but uh, we're going to be seeing some more direct gold action pretty soon. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. They're visiting all these planets and everyone's realizing that Earth is there. I hope no one's actually trying to just visit Earth and dying. <laughs> like every other Stargate we see is open, except Earth's a death trap. And there's no way to tell that generally unless you have a probe. So I'm, I'm really I'm really kind of scared. Like the busy signal on Earth is you're dead. That's a good point. Yep. <laughs> that's yep. <laughs> well... If other people are, I don't think we're going to find out about it. <laughs> they could have had some technology which, quote unquote, buries the gate, except when they need to use it. And they didn't do that. It's very unclear what the definition of burying a gate is in this <laughs> show. <laughs> I think it's probably like some physical substance, you know, inside the ring. Maybe. But no, it's, it's true. They, they don't really. Bury the gate sounds very dramatic as a thing to do. But yeah, it's true that they never define it. But now you got me thinking about that. Oh, boy. No randos visiting Earth. Well, there doesn't seem to be a lot of traffic. Right? Like, if they're going to be inspiring. <laughs> the world building of the galaxy is most of the galaxy's planets with gates on them are run by the, the Gwul. Yeah. That does seem to be pretty much what the implication is, I think. Yep. Yeah. And their ships, which they keep forgetting about. <laughs> I think that's about going to do it for this time. I've really enjoyed this discussion with you guys. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. Happy to be here. I would, of course, like to thank The Incomparable for hosting us. And I would really like to thank our listeners. I hope you've been enjoying listening to us talk about this. If you'd like to join the conversation, we hang out on The Incomparable members Slack. And you can hit us up on Twitter also. Thanks, everybody. And we'll be talking to you again later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.